And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome everyone to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. As always, I am your host, Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everybody for downloading and listening to this show. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where I had my good friend Mr. Sean Engel on as a guest, and we took a look at a pair of classic episodes of the original Ultraman, as well as an issue of Shogun Warriors from Marvel Comics. Got a good episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at a uh, rather unusual Daikaiju film from the Showa era. We're going to be looking at Daimajin from the uh, Daiyi Company, which is kind of their sister series to their Gamera films. We also do have, in fact, the next issue of Shogun Warriors, which is Shogun Warriors number 15. And we'll also get to your emails. But right now, I've got a little bit of news I'd like to get into here. Uh, I told you last time that Crunchyroll, uh, which you can find at Crunchyroll.com, had started airing the subtitled version of Ultraman Max. Well, immediately after that episode was recorded, they started airing Ultraman Mabus as well, which is from 2006 to 2007. Same setup. Uh, premium users can get the whole series right now. Free users such as myself, you get eight episodes at a clip, uh, but in a, a few weeks it'll all be up anyway. And it's uh, subtitled and uncut, and it's a complete series. Uh, so you check it out, crunchyroll.com. Definitely very cool to get some Heisei-era ultra shows that I was not real familiar with, and to get them for free, even if it's streaming and ad-supported, which is, uh, you know, that doesn't bother me none. So very cool, I thought. In the realm of toys, we have some more Ultra news here. Uh, Tamashii Nations, which is the uh, outfit, of course, that releases SH Monster Arts and Ultra Act and SH Figure Arts, their United States distribution wing is called Bluefin, and this is uh, the outfit that releases them when you can buy them through Amazon or through previews or anyplace else. Well, they have announced that the second version of the Ultra 7 Ultra Act is going to be re- reissued here in the States. So coming in March of 2015, we'll be able to buy him for uh, $31.99. I got this news from Sci-Fi Japan, but it'll be on Amazon and in previews. So definitely a good price for a very cool Ultra Act figure. Yeah, if you go on my, the Facebook page... Um, Earth Destruction is the first name, Directive is the last name. I put up, uh, last year I put up some pictures of my Ultra Act of Ultra 7 fighting a vinyl of Ella King. Very cool uh, figure, definitely check that out. Uh, X Plus has some new releases coming out. Also, uh, this information also comes from Sci-Fi Japan. This is in their high-end uh, vinyl range. Uh, they've got a King Ghidorah from Destroy All Monsters coming out at the amazing price of 38 thousand yen that's roughly almost four hundred dollars for a vinyl it's like jeez jesus that's a that's just ridiculous uh one i really like but unfortunately will not be able to get is a boris who is of course the rival of vanilla which uh, came out over the summer but that's a shonen rick exclusive shonen rick is x plus's uh, japanese only online store so unless you get a middleman or find a reseller no chance on that one 
Uh, we also have the high poly resin version of uh, Godzilla 1964. This also retails for 30,000 yen, uh, but very, very high grade, high detail, and it's made of resin instead of vinyl. Very, very nice looking a rendition of Godzilla from 1964. And one of the more interesting ones, they've got a trio of releases in a new line called Monster Museum, and it's um, three ultra monsters. It's Zarab, Balton, and Pigmon. Now these stand about 10 centimeters tall, and they're 4,800 yen in, with a clear plastic case for display. They're about $48 a piece, and they're just little little statues. Like I guess the idea is you can put them all on display, like a museum piece showing off all the different monsters. Um, probably still even at 10 centimeters, uh, it's a good size, but out of my price range at the price, but still pretty neat. So check it out, sci-fi-japan.com. And one last bit of Ultra news just announced as today as I'm recording this: the upcoming Ultraman Ginga S Showdown Ultra 10 Warriors film, which is coming out uh, in March in Japan, and that features 10 Heisei era Ultra heroes in one climactic battle and I just saw the trailer for it and it features uh, besides Ginga S and Victory the two from our current series it also features Tiga, Dinah, Gaia, Mabus, Max, Nexus, Cosmos and who am I forgetting there's one else in there too so um uh, so very, very cool looking uh, movie. Hopefully I can find a fan sub of this or a, a DVD release at some point in the future. I'm really enjoying Ginga S, even though the fan subs have kind of petered out after episode four. But I've been watching the Raws, and it's still a lot of fun and really cool. So I'm really enjoying it, and I'm definitely looking forward to the Ginga S movie. All right, I am going to take a quick break, and then when we come back after this podcast promo, we're going to get right into it with Daimajin here on Earth Destruction Directive. In Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. This time out, we're going to be taking a look at the film Dai Majin. Dai Majin was released by the Dai Motion Picture Company, of course, better known for their Gamera series. It was released in Japan in April of 1966, had a brief theatrical run under the same title in August of 1968, and is best known in this country from its AIP TV version, where it was shown as Majin, Monster of Terror. Our story begins with a series of tremors rocking a small village in feudal Japan. The villagers believe that this is the spirit of Daimajin, the great demon god, trying to escape from his mountain prison and quickly begin the prayer ritual to keep him entombed. Meanwhile, at the palace, the daimyo, Lord Hanabasa, and his wife comfort their children, Tadafumi and Kozasa, and leave them in the care of the retainer Kogenta, a brave and loyal samurai. Meanwhile, the Chamberlain of the castle, Samanasuke Odate, schemes with his ally Gunjuro as they plan to overthrow Hanabasa and seize the castle. The coup goes down in brutal fashion and Lord and Lady Hanabasa are killed. Kogenta tries to escape with the children, but they end up penned 
in the stables with the rest of the loyal Hanabasa vassals. Gunjuro lights the stable on fire to smoke them out. The vassals tell Gogenta to take the children and flee while they hold off the usurpers. Kogenta and his charges disappear into the night on foot, but are pursued on horseback by Gonjuro and his men. The riders come across the ritual, where they break it up, declaring Lordo Date as their new daimyo and forbidding any such gatherings in the future. The priestess Shinobu warns of the grave error of not performing the ritual, but Gonjuro ignores her. Kogenta, Tadafumi, and Kozasa continue to flee, hiding from Odate's men. They wind up at the home of Shinobu, who was Kogenta's aunt and loyal to the Hanabasa line. She spirits them up the Majin's mountain, where the stone idol of Daimajin stands. There she takes them to a secret temple hidden in a cave where they can hide from Odate. Some time has passed. Tadafumi and Kozasa grow into young adulthood, with Tadafumi reaching his 18th birthday. The intervening decade has been brutal in the village. Lord Odate's ambition has driven him to either conquer or make forced allies of all of the neighboring villages, and he has cowed the villagers to labor as slaves to build his fort. Kogenta journeys to the village to try to locate loyal Hanabasa vassals, but winds up being cornered and captured. A young boy escapes from the village and goes to the mountain to pray to Daimajin, but winds up running into Shinobu. He tells her that Kogenta was captured, which pushes Tadafumi to attempt to rescue him. But the young lord is himself captured, and both men are scheduled to be executed in the morning. Seeing no other choice, Shinobu goes to speak with Odate, warning him of the great wrath of Daimajin if he kills Kogenta and Tadafumi. Lord Odate is disgusted with the old priestess and strikes her with a mortal blow. But before she dies, Shinobu gives him one final warning. Odate then orders Gonjuro to destroy the stone idol remove it as a rallying point for any disloyal subjects. Gunjuro and his crew travel up the mountain, but wind up finding Kozasa quite by accident. Gunjuro is pleased, as he will destroy the idol and capture the lost Hanabasa princess. But as his men attempt to demolish the idol, strange things start to happen. An enormous chisel is placed on the idol's head, but when it is hammered in, blood begins to pour from the statue. Terrified, the men flee, but the mountain begins to quake, and they are crushed and swallowed into the cracks. Kozasa prostrates before Daimajin and begs him to save Tadafumi and Kogenta. His stone visions betrays nothing, so she tries to throw herself down the mountain as a sacrifice to the idol. But before she can do so, the rocks covering the bottom of the idol slide off, and the, ne and the formerly half-covered idol stands revealed. Daimajin walks forward, and his face changes from plain stone to that of a demonic, cruel samurai. At Lord Odate's fort, Daimajin appears from a flash of light in the sky. The towering stone devil crushes everything and everyone in his path, turning back all of the weapons of Odate's men. The only ones he does not kill are Tadafumi and Kogenta, whom he bypasses after knocking over the large wooden crosses they were tied to. Daimajin smashes the fort, crushes men under his stone feet, pounds others with his fists, and leaves nothing but carnage in his wake. Lord Odate tries to hide in the castle, but Daimajin smashes his way through a wall and grabs the tyrant, squeezing him in his stone hands. Bringing him to a wall, Daimajin removes the chisel from his forehead and impales Odate through the chest. The prayer of Kozaza answered. Daimajin then turns to unload his anger upon the rest of the villagers. Tadafumi tries to make Daimajin stop, but he winds up being dragged behind the demon and thrown aside. 
Daimajin rears his foot up to crush Tadafumi, but Kozasa throws herself around her brother to protect him. Daimajin stops in place. Staring at Kozasa, Daimajin's demonic face returns to impassive stone, and his spirit flies off in another flash of light. And as Kozasa and Tadafumi watch, the immobile idol crumbles to dust before their eyes. Wow, this one is a lot different than pretty much all the other films that we've covered here on Earth Destruction Directive. It really stands out as unique. You know, uh, having the the setting being set in feudal Japan, I believe it's supposed to be 17th century feudal Japan, given the presence of uh, certain elements, which I'll mention as we go along, really makes this stand out. It's a very unique film, and uh, I really enjoyed watching this one again. So let's get into the notes. As I said, this is uh, definitely a, a period film. It's got wonderful period costuming and set decoration. It really looks like this could have been just a straight samurai film for the first hour or so. Uh, it's played almost completely straight, the samurai aspects of it. These are kind of stock ideas, you know, the kind uh, and uh, just daimyo being overthrown by uh, a power-mad warlord, his son having to go into hiding with his loyal retainers coming back to fight the daimyo. This is, you know, fairly standard issue samurai stuff, but then you combine this with a daikaiju story and you get something really unique. Now, there are three Daimajin films. There is this one, then there is Return of Daimajin, and Wrath of Daimajin. Dai produced all three of these in 1966, and they were all released within a few months of each other. This was done as a cost-saving measure. They reused costumes and sets between the three films. And it also speaks to why they never did any more of these. These were much more expensive to make because... Uh, than the Gamera films because not only did you need to do the miniatures and the um, monster effects and all that, but now you had to do all the sets, you had to do all the costuming, you had to do all that, um, you know, props, all that stuff had to look futile, so it had a lot more money being spent on that, which is why they made the three of them and then they were done, made a little series of them. But there, and, and, and I don't have a problem with reusing stuff like that, but it's a little unfortunate that we didn't get more Daimajin films as we went along. I thought if the series had continued, would have made a really nice counterpoint to the uh, Gamera films, which were, of course, always set in the modern day um, and always had science, science fiction elements, whereas this has more historical dramatic elements. Uh, Akira Ifakube does the score, which is odd. Uh, he didn't do a lot of work for Dai, but this one is his most standout uh, non-Toho score, I think. It's wonderfully moody. It's got some really spooky parts to it. We would hear echoes of this score in later films. One of the major um, pieces that I, I immediately recognize from something else is when they're on uh, the Daimajin's mountain, when they're looking at the idol, or when they're in the temple. It's very much like his score that would be used in Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah in 1991. Specifically, the scenes in the flashbacks on World War II with the Godzilla Saurus sound a lot like the scenes on Majin's Mountain. But it's a really good score. Kind of low-key for Akira Ifakube, but really good. And you can find uh, selections of it on YouTube, and the whole score is available out there in Japan. So I'm sure if you could find an import disc of it, if you really as I said, because this is sort of a stock samurai story, it's filled with a lot of kind of stock samurai characters. We've got Kogenta, the, the loyal retainer, you know, Tadafumi, the young lord, uh, Odate, the cruel usurper, Gonjuro, the thug henchman, and he's like the prototypical samurai thug henchman, he even looks like it. You know, he's, he's fat, he's got a big chin, he's got the jowls, he looks like a, a thug. You know, the uh, Shinobu, the old priestess. Uh, Kozasa, the uh, the young princess, you know, the, the very delicate princess girl. 
So there, there are all sorts of stock characters. They're cliches from a samurai film point of view, but in a daikaiju film, that's okay. It, it's taking a, you know, it's a mashup. So we can take the stock characters and put them in a stock situation, but we're doing a new twist on it. To me, it's no different than when you take, say, a Western, of course, the, which is the Western equivalent of a samurai film, and then you add a horror aspect to it or some kind of supernatural aspect to it. And it takes, you know, these stock characters and puts a spin on it. So that's what they're doing here. And I, it really turns out very nice. You know, cliches are okay. Sometimes cliches work. So it's very novel to, to watch this and see all these samurai characters uh, going through this samurai story when in the back of your mind you know there's monster coming. <laughs> uh, the, one of the first scenes in the film is the, uh, the villagers praying to Daimajin. This made me think of the scene from Gojira where the natives uh, perform the uh, ritualistic prayer to Gojira on Odo Island. Again, kind of a idea here where on Odo Island it was, you know, specifically said this was the old ritual that was one of the old ways. Well, this is, this is the old times. This is a modern ritual for them because it's set, again, in the 17th century. I thought that was really nice and does a good job of introducing us to the priestess of Shinobu, who's a very important character in the film. And I really like her. She's got a really strong performance in this film. Um, one of the really s extremely standout scenes to me, not so much from the acting or the effects or anything, but just from kind of the level of, um, I don't want to say violence, but maybe the level of just from the extremity of it, is a scene where Gunjuro actually tortures Kogenta after Kogenta is captured. And they've got him kind of tied up between two stakes, and Kogenta is, you know, he's, I mean, he's in really rough shape, and Gunjuro is heating irons in a fire, and they're, you know, rolling the irons across his back and chest as they're torturing him to know whether the Hanabasa heirs are still alive. And uh, again, I, this is not something that would seem out of place in a samurai film, but in a daikaiju film, this is a bit much. And it's not graphic, I mean, there's no blood, I mean, it's, it's just you see him, you know, writhing and the, the burn marks all over him, but, you know, that's kind of a... Well, almost a bridge too far, really, when you're used to a, a, you know, a series of films, or genre of films, I should say, where the most violence we're going to get is, you know, two monsters tearing into each other. To see one, you know, a man being burned with hot irons is, uh, that's a little take, it'll, it takes you back a little bit. It's, it's a good scene. It's very effective. And again, it pushes that, sa that straight samurai drama elements of the film, and I, and I like it. It was just unusual to see it in what is still tantamount, at the end of the day, a daikaiju film. Um, Ordo Date breaks one of the cardinal rules of a samurai story. Never kill the old priestess. Everybody knows that. Bad things come when you kill the old priestess, and it's absolutely no different here. He cuts uh, Shinobu down, and, you know, ten minutes later, Daimajin smashing up his fort. You know, again, I... I can at least forgive him because maybe he's not old enough to have seen a samurai movie before and this being the, seven, the 17th century, but still, you should know better than that. You never kill the old priestess. It's like playing a Call of Cthulhu game, I burn the books. Nothing good comes from them. During the scene where Gunjuro and his men are fleeing from the uh, the earthquake on the mountain, there's some really interesting lighting choices that are made that really stood out. Um, the film is lit very naturalistically. There's a lot of outdoor scenes, so a lot of natural light. And inside, is not obviously, there's no artificial light sources that are diegetic. Obviously, there's no overhead lights or anything like that. So things inside are lit by fire or from um, exterior light coming in. So very naturally uh, lit and shot film, which makes sense, again, for a film set in the 17th century. 
But during this scene, as the earth begins to quake and the fissures open up in the mountain, streaming up out of the fissures are really harsh, artificial, um, bright colored light. We get blues, greens, yellows, all mixed together. And it really gives this very spooky, supernatural feel to it. You know, earthquakes happen in Daikaiju movies. I mean, when you've got giant monsters fighting each other and volcanic activity and things like that, you know, volcanic eruptions and earthquakes happen. But here, this takes on a whole new kind of feeling for the viewer. It's not, you know, it's, it's great power, but it's this you know, supernatural, spiritual power coming forth and killing all these men. It's really a nice scene. And, uh, you know, the it's the standard issue sort of, you know, we got the set on, on shake tables and gimbals and we can move stuff back and forth. But, you know, it's really nicely done and the, the lighting really adds a lot to it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very, again, it's spooky because we've been in a film that's been fairly straightforward, but then up until for the first hour, and then we get to this scene where first the blood coming from Daimajin's uh, head which is, I'm sorry, that's creepy, you know, that, that's like something out of an EC comic, a stone statue bleeding, you gotta love it, um, but then the, they said the earthquake scene is, is, is subtle, but it's really effective, I really like that part. As I said, it's right about the hour mark when things begin to turn away from samurai and into the more supernatural. We still get the samurai um, aspects, there's a, a really um, a great bit right before Daimajin attacks uh, Hordodate's um, uh, fort, where, you know, he comes out and he's uh, basically um, taunting uh, Kogenta and Tadafumi that where are all your loyal vassals? I expected a great battle and that you might uh, have a lot of company as you, uh, as you journeyed into the, the afterlife. Uh, because, you know, and mocking that there are no uh, Hanabasa vassals there to defend him. And then there's an uprising out of the, um, the slave ranks of the loyal Hanabasa vassals, and it starts this little samurai fight that is immediately interrupted by the arrival of Daimajin. So again, I, there's still samurai elements to it, but once Daimajin walks out of the hill and his face changes, which is a really neat little wipe effect, because his face is just a stone face with no emotion and no... Um, no expression on it. He brings his hand in front of it, and as uh, he brings his hand, they they wipe into the the really gruesome green face. And the interesting thing about Daimajin's face is that he looks like, in traditional Japanese art, how they might show a, a shogun or a samurai. He got a kind of a twisted, you know, um, harsh face, but it's this green skin that makes him look like a like a demon, like an oni almost. So he has a very um, a lot of personality in his face, even though obviously he never speaks, as they convey a lot of emotion because he has human eyes, you know, and that's always a plus. It's, it's you know, one of the things that with, with Daikaiju, it's sometimes hard to do because you have to, the eyes have to be mechanical for the most part, or just painted on or whatever. So you lose that kind of emotional resonance a lot with the eyes until you start getting to more modern films where they can have really nice, um, animatronic eyes and, and do more work with performance. Whereas in the 60s, this was harder to pull off. Well, here, Daimajin's eyes are his are a human's eyes. So when he when he's making his rampage, you know, when he turns and glares at someone, it's like, whoa, it's a little, uh, a little chilling because uh, there's, you know, understandable malice behind those eyes. And it's just like, yeah, that's, it really, it really sells the character of Daimajin as this vengeful, horrible spirit that they've unleashed. I really like that. 
Uh, speaking of Daimajin's Rampage, it basically takes up the last 15 minutes or so of the film. And uh, it's nothing but cruelty and viciousness from Daimajin. I mean, he, he just levels everything in his path, crushes people underfoot. And you know that's got to hurt a big dude made of stone. He punches one guy into a wall, and we see him crushing the guy into the wall. I mean, it's just absolutely... Uh, it, 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 I, don't, I hesitate to say over the top, because it's not, because it's all played really straight. But after the build-up and build-up and build-up of how cruel Odate and all of his loyal men have been, it's very carthritic to see Daimajin just lay waste to them in such uh, spectacularly mean fashion. It's really, really cool. And of course, with what happens to Odate, I mean, Odate, as all you know, uh, cruel usurpers in uh, in a you know stock story tend to be. He's of course a coward, and he runs and hides. It doesn't stop it. I imagine just pulls him out. And I remember the first time I watched this, I was watching with my friend Joe, and we were up in his place, and we're watching it. And we're watching it, and uh, when he pulls the Dimajan pulls the chisel out of his head. You could almost see the light bulb go on over my friend's head. He's like, that's why they left the chisel in his forehead. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, again, what other Daikaiju movie do you see a human being run through with a giant stone chisel? It's like, yee, ouch. Just, but um, like I said, for considering that he doesn't speak, obviously, he has a lot of personality. Daimajin really comes across really well. And I really like the aspect of this where after he answers um, Kozasa's prayer, he turns on the rest of the village. I mean, he's still this rampaging demon god that they had locked up in a mountain. You know, obviously he's not friendly. You know, like Arn Anderson would say, we don't wear white hats. We're not nice guys. So I really like that, that, you know, this is, um, this is like this ultimate and terrible solution to their problem, but have they unleashed something even worse than Lord Odate by releasing Daimajin? And of course, you know, the, the girl prostrating before him and he, he gives up the fight and leaves so uh it's it's a very abrupt ending which is not uncommon for daikaiju films especially this era to have the fight end and then like a minute of wrap up and then we're done not not uncommon for a lot of genre films to be honest from this period and dating into the 50s and 60s but uh, it's it's a little twist at the end and you you think about like oh man they've unleashed something really horrible and again sir further serves to put over just how uh, you know, really cool monster Daimajin is in the the pantheon of monsters that we've got in 1966. You know, uh, this Daimajin is a wonderful little movie, definitely worth watching if you're listening to this show. If you like samurai films, I would call this a must see. Um, with the caveat that it's not a serious film, you know, this is not Kurosawa, but if you like the trappings of the traditional samurai films, you definitely need to check this one out because it's a solid entry as a samurai film, even, um, you know, ignoring the supernatural aspects. The supernatural aspects makes it that much more unique and that much more memorable to me. Um, for sheer novelty, I think any Daikaiju fan needs to check this one out and the sequels. It's very now. Here's the thing: you can get all of them very easily because I have these in a uh, DVD three-pack that was put out a couple of years ago, uh, more than a couple of years ago now. I believe ADV put that out. But the films are now also available on a Blu-ray triple feature. So one purchase, you get all three films. You can't really beat that. Makes for a good, uh, you know, a good uh, day's viewing to watch all three of these in one setting. I think. 
so yeah, definitely check out Daimajin. Uh, they know the Blu-ray is available on uh, Amazon, so if you go to twotruefreaks.com, click on the Amazon.com link, go pick that one up. The DVD, I want to say, is out of print at this point, but I got it because I got mine a number of years ago at this point, but uh, that came out in like 2000 three or so it's been out for a while so you can probably find that used if you don't have a blu-ray player just prefer to have it on dvd but definitely we're checking out you know they're it's unique among all these films and i know i keep saying that but it's true you know one of the things about daikaiju is that at least from the uh, from a film standpoint they tend to be films that take place in the modern day you know or the future just the way that the stories work it's the nature of science fiction and especially giant monster science fiction so setting one here in the past and combining it with another, um, you know, classical sort of film genre, it really does, it does wonders for making this a memorable little film, and it's really worth checking out. So, uh, if you haven't seen it, check out Daimajin and its sequels, and, uh, you know, let me know what you think. I'd be interested to hear what people think of this one if they check it out. So, go ahead, watch it, and send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. We can talk about, you know, does the mashup of the samurai and the daikaiju work, or do you prefer your daikaiju set more in a modern day? I mean, I prefer, I prefer obviously mindset in a modern day, but for a one, for a mashup, this is fantastic. I think it's just a lot of fun and a really cool monster and uh, just really, really um, worth watching. So, all right, I am going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to take a look at Shogun Warriors number 14 from the Marvel Comics Group. Shogun Warriors number 14 was cover dated March 1980, released on or around December 4th, 1979. And a big thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com for that information. Our writer is Doug Mensch, our penciler is Herb Trimpey, inker Mike Esposito, letterer John Costanza, our colorist Bob Sharon, editor Alan Milgram, our editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, and the title of our story is Should Heroes Fail? On Dr. Demonicus's space station, riding Dangard Ace and Combatra are face-to-face-to-face -to -face -to -face with their three monstrous foes, the bizarre Starchild, the robotic Cerberus, and the serpentine Hand of Five. Demonicus lays it all out. He has used the electromagnetic equipment on his station to draw another giant meteor towards the Earth, and unless the Shoguns can defeat his monsters and stop the meteor, Earth is doomed. 
as each of the Shogun pilots remembers the trouble they had with these monsters on their own. Their own self-doubt translates to the Shoguns losing the initiative and being blasted by the trio of monsters. The Shoguns are battered from all sides as the meteor screams closer to Earth. Back in the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambora tries to rouse the pilots, first with praise, but then with shame, finally snapping them out of their self-induced funk. The Shoguns begin their counterattack, and Tambura spurs them on even further, ordering them to use the Shogun's cybernetic helmets to establish a direct link. The tactic works. Radiant's assault destroys Cerberus's body, with the head modules wiped out by Dangard Ace. Dangard and Kambatra then double-team the Star Child, laying it out with a barrage of rocket fists and finger missiles. Finally, all that remains is the Hand of Five, who streaks directly at the Shoguns, only to be vaporized by a mighty fusillade from all of their energy weapons. With only seconds remaining to stop the meteor, Genji blasts off in the Delta V module and crashes into the countdown apparatus right as it reaches zero. The Shoguns were too late. The meteor has streaked past the space station and now hurdles towards Earth. Genji quickly formulates a plan. The Shoguns can push the station into the meteor and use it like a battering ram to smash it off course. As Alongo and Richard argue over who will do the pushing, Genji orders them both to put their boot jets to work. Genji hurries to the control room, where she activates the maneuvering rockets of the space station, while Raiden and Dangard Ace take up position among the rockets themselves. Amidst the blast of the rockets, the two Shoguns add their own power, and the space station chases after the meteor. On Earth, Dina James contemplates the recent strange turns her life has taken, and sees two falling stars streak across the night sky. But those are no shooting stars as the Shoguns and the space station catch up to the meteor. But the meteor has begun to enter Earth's gravitational field. Savage and Carson suddenly come up with a plan, telling Genji to seal all of the internal hatches and corridors. The two Shoguns then use all of their firepower to cut the station in half. Then, like a cosmic billiard ball, they send it crashing into the meteor, deflecting it safely away from Earth. Later, back on Earth, the Shoguns leave Dr. Demonicus and the remaining section of his space station for S.H.I.E.L.D. agents Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones. As the Shoguns fly off without any explanation, Duggan muses aloud that they must think they are heroes or something. Next issue, Assault on Sanctuary. We get the finale, and that's the right word for it, I think, the finale to the story that's been uh, you know, a long time building here with Dr. Demonicus uh, sending his, uh, his monsters against the Shoguns and building and building, and we get a very nice payoff, I think, so let's get right into the notes. Our cover shows uh, Dr. Demonicus standing in front of a view screen with all of his goons around him, and then uh, kind of reaching for him and grasping at him are our three Shoguns, and there's some really nice use of harsh light because we see uh, Dangard Ace and Raidi and they're kind of facing directly at us and they've got like a almost like a direct white light source right on their front so we don't see a lot of their colors because they're kind of drowned out in the in the, sh the, uh, the direct light whereas Combatra who's reaching in from the left hand side of the cover he is almost in shadow except for his hand so it's like the the light from this view screen is just really shining really brightly. It's a nice use of light and shadow. I like this cover quite a bit. Uh, page one, we've got our splash page. There's a whole lot of figures crammed into this splash page. Um, we've got the three Shoguns, the three monsters, Dr. Demonicus, his control panel. Of course, we have to have the credits and the uh, copy and all that, so it's really uh, 
a lot of people on here. Kumbatra looks to be doing kind of like the lean-in like Bender used to do on Futurama. Just kind of poking in a little bit to make a, a comment. But really a good splash page in that it sets up the obvious central conflict here, which is the Shogun's battling the monsters. Turning over to page 3, panel 5, as Demonicus's monsters unload on the Shoguns. Interesting color choice here. We see all of the weapons being fired are brightly colored, but the Shoguns themselves are all completely black silhouettes. And uh, I like this. It, it looks very stark. It stands out on the page amongst all these bright colors to have these just completely black forms of the Shoguns. I guess the idea being that the uh, energy weapons of the three monsters are sending off such bright light that they're throwing them completely into shadow. It's really very, uh, very neat little panel. And it's neat also seeing all of the monsters unloading at once. You know, the Star Child is uh, breathing fire, the Hand of Five has launched the Five Fingers, and they're all blasting. And then we see Cerberus blasting with his arm cannons, and uh, it's had just the impact on the Shoguns. Very neat little panel. Turning over to now to pages 6 and 7, all I can say, Shoguns getting housed. Uh, straight up action here as the monsters pretty much lay waste to the Shoguns, and uh, it's not just the same matchups that we got in their solo stories. We see the Star Child attacking Raideen, we see Cerberus uh, fighting with Dangard Ace. Now, yet the Hand of Five does battle Combatra, but then they mix it up a little bit, too. It's just a, a nice sequence of seeing the Shoguns on the losing end after they kind of ran roughshod last issue. Now they're kind of being pushed back again. This calls back to the solo fight issues at the early parts of this story where the, they had to fight the monsters and they found them to be, you know, a, a very tough challenge on all fronts. So this it's a good sequence, and uh, Tambura starts losing his, uh, losing his mind a little bit about the Shoguns... Uh, not being able to uh, retaliate, so it's it's a good action sequence, and Demonicus gets to do his, you know, typical Silver Agey shtick, counting down this timer as uh, waiting for the meteor to be drawn to. Very good sequence here. Turning over to page eleven, panel one. There's this extreme close-up of Tambura's mouth with his mustache and his tongue, and there's the spittle between his uh, between his teeth. It's it's a ugh. It's really kind of disturbing. It's like, why did we need this extreme close-up? You know, I understand it's a, it's a long, thin panel, about maybe, I don't know, a fifth of the height of the page, but running the entire width. It's just, oh, that's the creepiest thing I've seen in this entire series. Ooh, just moving along from there. Turn the page quickly. Over to uh, page 14, where we get panel 5, where the Shoguns, now that they have been roused, so to speak, into fighting back, you know, like getting their fighting spirit back... They all put their hands in like they're going to do a, uh, everybody bring your hands in. Shogun Warriors on three. One, two, three, Shogun Warriors. <laughs> it's a neat panel, kind of unlikely in the narrative, considering the monsters have been blasting them mercilessly for the last couple of minutes, that they'd suddenly just give them a break to let them all bring it in. You know, it's, it's cool anyway. It's something you'd expect to see in like a tokusatsu TV show or, you know, an, a super robot anime, so I like it. Unfortunately, the next panel then shows uh, Raideen attacking with all of his weapons at once, and it's just really awkward and, and stiff. Uh, there was a similar panel to this, I want to say, in the, the second issue with Cerberus, where Raideen was attacking with all of his weapons, and he just looks odd, because the problem is, to throw the shield, his arm is, you know, kind of curved like a V, and then his other hand is straight out to fire the rocket and the Screamer Hawk. It's just really kind of stiff. It, it's kind of a standout panel in that it's not so great. Trimpy's art generally on the Shoguns is pretty good, so here this one stands out as being kind of unnatural looking. 
Uh, page 15, panels 1 through 4, we see the result of Rydeen's assault on Cerberus. And uh, as, as tough a monster as Cerberus was, he gets absolutely slagged here with a skang from the boomerang shield, a choom from the shock arrow, and a shrak from the screamer hawk. And Cerberus is just completely destroyed. So as tough as he was, you know that had to really hurt to kind of just take him out completely like that. And then we get some nice automatopoeia in the next panel as Dangard Ace takes out the head modules with a racked and a tomb. I liked seeing, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I liked Cerberus a lot. I thought it was really creative, but it shows you the true power, puts over the power of riding here that he, you know, just unloads and finally takes this monster out. Over on page 16, we get the double team attack of Dangard Ace and Combatra against a Star Child. Now, my question here, of these three monsters, the Star Child is the only one to me that I think is organic. Cerberus clearly was a monster. The Hand of Five is really, I think he's a robot because of all the jets and stuff built into him. I mean, I suppose it could be a cyborg monster. But the Star Child is clearly just organic, and they really lay this thing low. Do they kill the Star Child? You know, they don't really address it. They just say, uh, you know, Carson just says that's two down and one to go after, uh, you know, they all lay into it with rockets and missiles, and uh, we go boom, 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 and it goes down. So I wonder if they actually killed the Star Child here. They, they kind of gloss over it a little bit, but, you know, it'd be, uh, I don't have a particular problem with giant robots killing monsters, especially in a life-or-death fight, but it's a little... Um, almost a step too far if they kill the monster, I think, in this series, which has avoided that so far. Page 17, panel 2, we get a barrage of uh, all of the Shogun's firing at the Hand of Five. Uh, I love, uh, we see all of them firing their weapons out of their hands and their chest, and then this one Screamer Hawk missile just flying out of riding just randomly. I thought that's really just amusing. And the uh, Hand of Five is just atomized completely, and he is just gone. It's like, whoop, that's the end of that. <laughs> Turning over then to uh, page 22, panel 2, as Genji orders Carson and Savage to go apply their boot jets onto the space station, we get this great panel of them running. So we've got these giant strides of the uh, riding and Dengard Ace running. It's like, wow, how much ground are they covering at once? That's, uh, that's got to be a really big stride length. These guys to be great at track and field. Uh, then we turn over to the next page, 23, panel 3, and we see Dangard Ace and Rydeen pushing amongst, it's got to be at least um, a dozen jet engines, rocket engines on the space station, and they're just pushing, and you see their boot jets blasting in amongst it as well, and they call it a firestorm, and it's like, that's definitely uh, the right word for this situation. I like that this is a real crazy scenario that takes advantage of the fact that these guys are giant robots and not just normal-sized heroes, you know? Uh, to see somebody like Superman out here pushing this, it wouldn't be as dramatic from a visual standpoint because he would be so small in this panel. But you've got these giant robots that are pushing this gigantic space station. It's just really neat. And it's a cool um, bit of plot, too, that we're going to speed this thing up using all of the Shogun's abilities, not just their, their you know, weapons but all, all of their abilities. It's kind of like when you know Iron Man would use a portion of his armor that's not necessarily offensive in order to uh, solve a problem or stop something. So I like the use of that here by Mensch. Lower down on that same page, panel 8, Dina finally gets a last name. Uh, as Dina James. I don't remember her having a last name other than just being called Dina. I might be wrong because I didn't go back and check this. Maybe the listeners can, can write in and let me know. Did Dina have a last name before this panel, or is she dubbed Dina James here? Um, she's just... Uh, 
she's sitting up drinking coffee wondering how her life got to be this weird so I, we've all been there dina i'm right there with you turn over now to pages uh, 26 and 27 just a completely action-packed sequence here as they catch up to this meteor and on page 26 panel 5 is a great shot another wide narrow panel where we see as gigantic as this space station was remember the shoguns were running around inside of it the meteor dwarves the space station it's it the sense of scale here is it, it's really well handled by trimpy but it really kind of boggles the mind a little bit when you think about just how big this meteor is that demonicus pulled down and uh, you know you think about uh, think about all the meteor movies and stuff that we've seen over the years and the the small quote-unquote small meteors you know, always wipe out major cities and stuff so you get a real sense that if this one impacts it's pretty much uh, the <laughs> it's bad news let's just say that'll be the top story on uh, on uh, your week, you know, your evening edition right there. So, and then we get the uh, sequence here where Dangard and Rydeen cut the space station in half. Now, the way that Trimpy draws it, they cut it in half really evenly. Oh, it almost looks like uh, from the long shot, like they cut it just completely in half, like cutting a stick of butter. Now, I recognize that's just because we're at a far shot and we can't see all the details and everything. Uh, it's more just funny than anything else that they very neatly cut this space station in half. I really dig the concept of what they're doing here. You know, they can't kill everybody on the spaceship, so they've got all of Demonicus and his guys all rounded up, and obviously Genji is still on the the, uh, the space station as well. I think I said spaceship a moment ago. I mean space station. Uh, so they, they pack everybody on one side, seal it off, and then use it as a billiard ball to knock the uh, the meteor out of the path of Earth orbit. It's really a good sequence. And on the top of page 27, panel 1, you see Riding pitching, you know, half the station at the rock. And it really looks like he's pitching. You know, he's got uh, his right leg is extended out behind him. His left arm is pointed straight up. His uh, right hand has crossed in front of his uh, his left thigh. And he really looks like, Trimpy took some photographic reference of a, uh, a baseball pitcher throwing a ball because that's what it really looks like. And then the next panel where it exp you know it impacts and drives the meteor back and there's a big explosion. I just coming in just on the side of the panel, we see riding doing a fist pump. So you know Carson is piloting riding is it a fist pump up there, which I really I really appreciate it. Later on down that page, panel 5, we see Demonicus is just you know, beside himself with failure. And uh, we see the big accusatory finger of Kambatra. You can just imagine Genji wagging it at him as she says, Not laughing so hard now, are you, Demonicus? And <laughs> that really amused me. Page 30, the last page of the story, S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up. Specifically, Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones, who would appear a lot in Doug Mench's run on Marvel Godzilla. So this begs the question, why, if S.H.I.E.L.D. can show up here, did we have to get cutesy and play around with it in the last issue? Was it a tease that they didn't want to say S.H.I.E.L.D.? Maybe Marvel, you know, was Marvel editorial saying, eh, I don't know if you want to mention S.H.I.E.L.D. here, and then by the time this came around, Munch said, you know, we're going to use S.H.I.E.L.D.? I don't know. I mean, it, it. I like that, again, it very much ties it in, clearly, uh, beyond even the connection with Dr. Demonicus that this takes place in the Marvel Universe and the Shogun Warriors are a part of that. So I, I really like this. I like seeing uh, Duggan and uh, Gabe Jones again, again, because of their connection with Marvel Godzilla. And uh, I like here, um, Gabe Jones drops, name drops Red Ronin. He goes, uh, look, dum-dum, giant robots, three of them, like Red Ronin. Must be those Shogun Warriors we've been hearing about. <laughs> so I thought this was really neat, but... Uh, 
I said to Sean, half joking, but you know, part of me really thinks if I ever get to meet Doug Mensch at a show, I'm going to ask him about this because uh, that's the kind of nerd I am. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, just overall big bombastic action as the blow off to this very long running uh, Doctor Demonicus plot. It's action packed. It's a lot of fun. There is not a whole lot of subtlety or character bits, but it's the finale. I don't expect a lot of that kind of stuff at the end. It's a big battle storyline. I want things to, you know, end in a uh, big. Um, action uh, issue, and that's what we got here. So this has been a lot of fun. Taking a look real quick at some ads on the inside front cover, uh, we get delicious Winter Olympic bananas from Chiquita for the 1980 Lake Placid Winter Olympics, and you get all these 16 different collectible stickers featuring the uh, uh, mascot for the 1980 uh, Winter Games, and let's see, what was his name? I don't know. He's a, looks like a raccoon wearing a uh, uh, wearing like a, a, a snowsuit with uh, his tail sticking out the back. This was a little before my time, so I don't remember these games, but I do remember them being in, in Lake Placid, which was pretty cool, being as I am a native New Yorker. Uh, let's see, we get um, a full-page house ad for Epic, the next step forward, the all-new adult fantasy magazine from Marvel, which is really uh, very neat. Um, I've never really read Epic. I've, I've seen some of the later Epic imprint stuff, but never the magazine itself. And opposite that is the full-page ad for ROM has come, evil is on the run, the new electronic action toy, getting our, uh, you know, required monthly dose of ROM. A couple pages after that, we get a uh, full-page ad for Starfleet Defenders out of the galaxy, comes an Armoda, yes, not Armada, but an Armoda of Space Warriors to the rescue, come your Starfleet Defenders, each is made of real metal, yes, these are die-cast figures that are movable, so you can pose them, watch out. And we got Xenon, Galactus, and Starex, and uh, I don't know how tall these guys are, uh, but they do have launching fists. They look kind of like Shogun Warrior knockoffs, which I think is really appropriate, being as this is, of course, in Shogun Warriors. All three, the, the entire set of all three for $7.99. I might have to look into these, because these might be neat just to have on the shelf. And then the bottom half of the ad is um, for Star Trek The Motion Picture Toys, which is really timely. As I said, this issue came out in December of 1979, and, of course, Star Trek The Motion Picture was released in December of 1979. We got the Klingon Battleship, K-7 Space Station, the USS Enterprise, uh, three set of miniatures, and the USS Enterprise Command Bridge. Very neat. Let's see, what else do we have in here? On the uh, letter column page, the bottom port of it is another house ad for ROM Space Knight. Interesting, in the letter column page is, uh, specifically, there's an, a, uh, a letter from Kurt S. Olson from Brookline, Massachusetts, and he you know, doesn't have the best things to say about the book. And the response is, uh, they say, probably not, Kurt, but we ain't never going to stop trying. In fact, in the very near future, within the next issue or two, the Shogun Warriors book is slated for a major change in direction, mood, feel, style, and overall continuity. We may be prejudiced, true, but the fact remains we think it'll usher in a vast improvement in quality and reader interest. Stay with us and tell us if you agree. So it makes me wonder, did, you know, Mensch and Milgram and the rest of the uh, folks involved that not like where the story was going? I think it's a lot of fun. Now, I can recognize that I'm looking at this, you know, uh, with the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia being this is published almost 35 years ago at this point. You know, maybe in the... Uh, 
in the contemporary time when this was coming out, this wasn't being as well received because they weren't looking at it as I am as a fan of, you know, giant robots and giant monsters. So it's interesting that they make a specific point that, oh, things are going to get better, as if almost acknowledging that they haven't um, been putting out the best stuff. When I've, I've thought that this last storyline with the individual monsters and then the Dr. Demonicus plot tying it all together has been really very good for a, you know, a a licensed book from this era in the Bronze Age. So that was an interesting little tidbit from the, the letter column. Let's see, the we get America's Cup of Candy from Boyer. Hey, America, we've got your cup of candy. And they have peanut butter cup, which is exactly what it sounds like. Mallow cup, pure milk chocolate with a whipped creamy center. And then smoothie, honest-to-goodness peanut butter flavor inside and out. It's a peanut butter center topped up with a special non-chocolate crunch-style coating. That smoothie one sounds kind of interesting. I do like peanut butter. And you can also get your sensational light writer, which is a Cylon pen. The Cylon. It writes. It lights. It's straight from the 21st century. Get your hands on one now. Uh, it'd be cool if the the, uh, the visor went back and forth as you were writing. I don't think that's probably that technology's not there, but it would be pretty neat. Yeah, you get your hodgepodge ad, deluxe quality, 8mm Super 8 uh, movie viewer, you get the bullpen Boltons with a house ad for Conan the Barbarian on the bottom. Uh, we get the full page ad for Crazy featuring Batrock Zilipher, which I don't know if I'm going to even attempt to read because I, I cannot do the Batrock voice too often without it just sounding really, really ridiculous. Uh, we do, in fact, get a Hostess ad, and this one is awesome because it features Iron Man. And it's Iron Man in The Hungry Battle Axe. My radio is picking up a report of an intruder at the uranium vaults. He called himself Battle Axe, Iron Man. He's big, mean, and hungry. Out of my way, shellhead. My boot jets won't let that axe of yours get me. Swoosh! That was too close. Wait, what did the guard say? He's big, mean, and hungry? Maybe that's the clue. Is this a trick? No! Hostess fruit pies, apple, and cherry! Clever move, Iron Man, but you didn't have to be hungry to enjoy this light, tender crust, that real fruit filling. Forget the uranium. I'll keep the Hostess fruit pies. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. Now again, for a one-off Hostess ad villain, this guy looks pretty good. He's in a, a knight in a suit of armor, carrying a giant axe. You know, maybe this, maybe he's got powered armor like the Dread Knight, you know? I could see that. Also reminds me a bit of St. Bastion from when Rob Liefeld was writing the Savage Hawkman. I'm probably the only person listening to this show who made that connection, but, you know, there you go. And then on the uh, outside back cover... We get the full-page ad for Star Trek, the motion picture, The Human Adventure, is just beginning. And again, appropriate for the time, it says, Now playing at a theater near you. This is, of course, the uh, very well-known and easily recognized rainbow one-sheet. The faces of Kirk, Spock, and Lieutenant Ilea uh, amongst the multicolored rainbow stretching towards the top of the page. So, um, I enjoyed this issue. I've enjoyed this entire storyline in Shogun Warriors for the most part, so no real surprise there. Uh, good to see the blow-off. I'm interested to see what is the new direction that uh, Milgram was re or and or Mench, I'm not sure who writes the letters column at this point, is referring to, because um, I, I have not read ahead. This is as far as I've read. But I've enjoyed it, and I think this issue was a good way to end that big storyline, so I've just been having a lot of fun with these, and I'm eager to see what comes next. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... 
Jaman. Or maybe. Dragon Flame! How about. Tatsuo! Or. In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember? Our Star Blazers! Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. All right, and we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. So, it's time for one of my absolute favorite parts of the show, and that is listener feedback. So, if you want to send feedback back to the show, you can always email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, or you can hit me up on the Facebook page. First name is Earth Destruction, last name is Directive, and I'll repeat this information in the outro to the show. So, let's get right into it. Our first email comes from my good friend, Mr. Jack Dower, and uh, Jack writes to the subject IDW. Lieutenant Jack and Eddie, I'm incredibly stoked to hear that you are going to be doing Marvel Godzilla. I have not been this excited about a show since the premiere of Gotham. And coming from a Penguin fan like Jack, that's no real surprise. Uh, Jack continues, here's my question. I remember you commenting that IDW was going to lose the Godzilla license, but with Rulers of Earth still being one of the best series in comics and Cataclysm shaping up to be a great miniseries second only to Batman Eternal, have things changed between Toho and IDW? Thanks for all the hard work, and until King Caesar devours Fish Mooney, make mine EDD Jack Dower. P.S. Be careful out there. Um, yeah, that, that, I mean, all signs pointed to IDW's license having expired with Godzilla. Um, Rulers of Earth had a very definite finale at the end of issue number 12. Uh, they they hadn't solicited any new miniseries. They even put out that little one-shot called Godzilla the IDW Era, which had all the covers and short descriptions of each series that they published. So it really looked like they were done. So when the solicitation for Rulers of Earth number 13 came out, it was a huge surprise. In fact, I think it was Chris Mowry even made a comment about that in uh, the back pages of one of the later issues that the book is continuing. We're not sure how long it's going to go, but for as long as it goes, we're going to enjoy the ride. And so it was, uh, it's still going strong. Number 17 was uh, just released. 
uh, a couple of weeks ago as of this recording. And uh, Cataclysm, I think number three just came out on that one. So it's still going strong for all intents and purposes. It looks like IDW's license is renewed for at least one more year. So uh, from the end of uh, number 12 of Rulers of Earth. So we'll see how it goes. As far as Gotham, I'm enjoying it. I think it's pretty neat. Uh, I'm not really a fan of Fish Mooney. So if King Seesaw wants to come and eat her up, that'd be perfectly fine with me. Wouldn't bother me at all. Uh, thanks for writing in, Jack. Always good to hear from you. Our next email comes from Derek Crabb, and the subject is Earth Destruction Director of 32, Blue Stones, and Lawless Zones. And Derek writes, hello, Luke. Excellent podcasting from yourself and your co-host, Sean Engel. Keep up the great work. Take care, Derek. Now, Derek, um, fans of this show may know Derek from his work over on Fanholes, which you can find at fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. And he is, besides all the excellent straight-up Fanholes podcasts, he also do a series of sub-shows, one of which, which would probably be a lot of interest to listeners of our Destruction Directive, is Toku Thursdays. And I would definitely recommend checking that out. Derek's kind of the MC over there. And uh, they've taken a look at Android Key Kyder. They've taken a look at Kamen Rider Gaim. They've took a look at Ultraman 80. And uh, something might be coming up with Derek in the very near future. So go check out Fon- the Fanholes podcast, fanholespodcast.blogspot.com, and uh, give them a listen. they got a lot of great stuff they do. Uh, you know, just uh, random nerd stuff. They do comics. They do Doctor Who. They uh, do um, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam and anime and Toku. So really worth checking out. Thanks for writing in, Derek. Our next email is entitled Feedback and comes from Mike Staley. Mike writes, Hey, I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a huge fan of Japanese culture as a whole, and my collection of Daikaiju movies continues to grow. So it's awesome to hear someone else talk about them. I also wanted to let you know I'll be including your promo on the next episode of my own podcast. Speaking of which, since I know you're an Iron Man fan and probably know more about him than I do, I'd love to have you as a guest on my show, Invincible Ironcast, Classics Edition, sometime. Let me know if you're interested. Keep up the good work. Mike Staley. And as Mike said, he does in fact run the show, the Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition, which you can find at uh, ironcast.podbean.com, I believe. I think you mean invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Way to screw that up. And a uh, really good show. Mike's been working through the early issues of Tales of Suspense and just doing really quick, fun synopsis of those early Silver Age Iron Man stories. And he says, I'm a great Great big Iron Man fans. I love hearing those early Silver Age stuff. His show's a lot of fun. Like I said, it's fast-paced. Real good listen. Really good show. Definitely check it out. And uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And, I'm, you know, you see your Daikaiju movie collection continues to grow. We're living in a great time right now when it comes to having access to Daikaiju movies. More Daikaiju movies available in this country now than at any other time ever in history. And in, you know, not just on uh, DVD, but Blu-ray also. So depending on how your taste runs for format, you really got a lot of options out there as far as uh, good Daikaiju movies to add to your collection. And, uh, you know, hey, if you uh, got any other questions about Daikaiju movies or you want to do a guest spot, just send me, a, send me an email. We'll work something out. Thanks for writing in, Mike. Uh, I thought about this a while and I keep forgetting to do it. Um, iTunes. Now, anytime that you leave a review for a show you like on iTunes, five stars, one star, whatever you want, any more reviews you give, the more it helps the show gain visibility. So I thought I'd give a shout out to my two iTunes reviews that are on the iTunes site right now for Earth Destruction Directive, which is, of course, part of the Two True Freaks 2 feed, which we're not part of anymore. you got to get our own feed. It's all very confusing. It confused the heck out of Dr. Bell, and I'm not much better. 
the first uh, comment, first review on iTunes comes from my good friend again, Jack Dower. says, great show for any fan of Kaiju. Detective Jack and Eddie may be a cop on the edge, which is a great fire and water reference right there, but he is also a Kaiju expert and podcaster supreme. This is a fascinating and fun show for all. Thank you for the great work, sir, Jack Dower. Jack, thanks for the kind words. I'm, I'm, I do my best out here. You know, I, all the superlatives that they get thrown around for different podcasters. You know, I'm, I'm just a guy talking about giant monsters, and I, I talk about what I like, and I think it's the enthusiasm that is is what makes this show what it is. So, thank you very much, Jack. And our the other review is entitled "Wonderful Stuff" by. Uh, fellow Two True Freaks podcaster Gene Hendricks, he of the Hammer podcast and the Quantum cast, and of course Anime Freaks with Dr. Bill Robinson. Do you like giant monsters? Do you like giant robots? Do you like giant monsters that fight other giant monsters and or giant robots? If you answered yes to any of these questions, and this is the show for you. Whether it's Godzilla, King Kong, Gamera, Ultraman, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, or any of the other shows out there, Luke is supremely knowledgeable and entertaining in bringing you all the information about it. Give it a shot. Y'all be glad you did. Well, thank you very much, Gene. I really appreciate the kind words. Like I said, you can find Gene on a couple of shows on Two True Freaks. Um, I, I absolutely love uh, Anime Freaks. Him and Dr. Bill are going through the early episodes of Star Blazers, which is a show that is a little before my time, but uh, still a lot of fun hearing them cover that. And uh, Hammer Podcast is great, because you never you never really know what Gene's going to bring up on the Hammer Podcast. It's just the nature of the format of his show. Really good stuff. Thank you very much, guys. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, please go ahead and do so. Like I said, it helps the visibility of the show. So just go to iTunes, search your Earth Destruction Directive, and there you go. Alright, so what are we going to be covering next time? I alluded to earlier when I was reading uh, Derek's email that something might be coming up with the folks over from Toku Thursday at the Fan Holes podcast. And so that is exactly what's going to be happening. Our next episode uh, is going to be, I'm going to be joined by Derek and we're going to be taking a look at Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie. That's right, probably the craziest Ultraman movie of all time, and I'm recruiting another fellow Ultra fan to take a look at this one and, you know, just really soak in all the Ultra goodness as uh, in this feature-length film, which was the first of the Ultraman Zero films, and uh, really looking forward to that. I think Shogun Warriors is going to take a break next month so that Derek and I can focus on the uh, Ultraman film, but um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so come on back next time. We're going to take a look at Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie. And until then, keep on stopping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. 
Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.